Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Uh, my name is Jeb, and I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic and addict. And uh, this is going to be an interesting experience because I have no idea what I'm going to share. Well, I have a rough idea. I do know, however, that um, this is not my fifth step because the book said it was supposed to share in a general way what things are like, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Um, a lot of the shares that I do here are really like a fifth step, according to the way I understand it. The big book says that we sit down for a long talk and tell our life story, our whole life story, perhaps for the first time. And uh, my life story is much longer today because I know myself better than I did uh, 42, 42 and a half years ago. Uh, and actually, the actual number of days is 15,533 days since my last drink of alcohol. And I, I just want to be with, bear witness to the fact that this whole 12-step recovery process is a, is a process and a continuing process where, as I say, I, I know more about myself today and what was behind my drinking and other, other problems uh, than I did even 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, I, I, I had, when I, actually I sobered up in Baltimore, Maryland, and not in AA, but when I moved to Montana, I, I was, I, I really needed some support and uh, I needed to find, oh, I guess I was maybe lonely. I needed to start connecting with people who didn't drink. And someone suggested I try an AA meeting. And that was one that, that was a, an enlightening experience uh, because uh, first of all, I was hesitant to, to park right in front of the place. So I parked a block or two, or block and a half away and then walked to the building and, uh, uh, you know, into a group of strangers. You know, I didn't know anybody there. But when I heard their stories, I, I realized that, oh, I thought I was fucking crazy, but it must be that I'm just an alcoholic. And even though I haven't had a drink for over two years, I still have that alcoholic mind. And so uh, I identified with so much that people said there about their pasts and their problems, their feelings. And But I left that meeting with, with, with a, a gift of hope that I could learn to enjoy life without drinking. Uh, because that had been my obsession since I put the plug in the jug, you know, I'd think, oh, how could I possibly have, have steamed crabs in Maryland where I sobered up uh, without beer? How can I have pizza without beer? How can I do anything without beer? But a day at a time, I, I, I learned that I could uh, give up those things and um, find I could drink other things besides, besides beer, probably drank too much coffee for the first 30 years, or maybe that, maybe uh, the first 40 years of my, of my sobriety. Um, <clears throat> but I think in uh, the picture behind me is where it all started. Like it's uh, a picture of Missoula, Montana, where I was, where I was born. I was actually born the same year as the big book, uh, but, was printed and um, I have more memories of, of my childhood now than I did even 10 years ago. And that's because AA or something I took out of the book 
on the inventory, and Bill suggested we go back through our, our lives. And I've continued to go back further and further and further uh, in successive four-step practice over the years. So what I share today is, is, is from uh, uh, many years of trying to practice these principles, these steps in, in all of my affairs. I see my life differently now than I did when I came into AA uh, only 40 years ago. Um, and it's just because the things that were hidden have, have been made known. AA has given me the tools to face the things that I didn't want to face. Uh, I grew up in a, uh, uh, well, Missoula was only about 40,000 people when I was growing up there and a university town, and uh, it was a very safe place. Uh, my family was deeply involved in, in, uh, in the church, and uh, that was, in, in many ways, the center of our lives. This was, of course, way before TV. We did have radios, of course. And um, I had no... I didn't start drinking alcoholically really until I was in the Navy at, at age 18 and 19. But I was very aware in my early recovery that I had very few memories of from eight, 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 age eight to 11 and just blanked that out. And it wasn't until I started retiring in 2002 that I began to have time or personal power, maybe it is, to, to look at uh, what was going on then. Uh, there was a lot of drinking in our family, extended family. When, when, when the relatives gathered, there was, it, was, it was a frivolous time. It was a joyful time. They, you know, they, they joked with one another. They laughed a lot. And I thought that was great. Um, so I, I can say early on, I, I was looking forward to being able to have that kind of uh, that freedom and join the crowd. So um, my, um, I never tell my story in the chronological order because that isn't the way that it comes to my mind. But, um, I, I think the first escape from whatever it was that I was trying to numb, that I numbed out later with alcohol and other things was uh, with sweets. I, I used to get um, pop bottles from neighbors and friends and so forth and take them down to the local uh, little store and uh, cash them in for, uh, for money. I think there was three cents a bottle that we reusable bottles and I would use that to buy buy candy and uh, the family always rewarded us for doing a good job with sweets with dessert so I, I, I learned that the effect produced by by uh, carbohydrates sugar in particular uh, uh, was pretty good effect really good um, my I've been I in my youth, I do recall that two of my uncles um, in their 40s uh, died, one of cirrhosis of the liver, the other of pancreatitis. 
and uh, I had, you know, I, I guess maybe we'd say they're alcoholic, but nobody in our family thought alcoholism was deadly. It was just that people drank a lot. And I was pretty sure that eventually I might join that crowd of, of drinking and been drinking safely. My father bought a grocery store when he was, uh, when I was on my 14th birthday, he, he took possession of this little grocery store and meat, meat market. And, uh, at that point, I could uh, walk in there anytime I wanted and, and grab a package of cigarettes. And then uh, I found I could also take a six-pack of beer home and, uh, or someplace. So I started enjoying, enjoying the relief that, that both of those uh, uses, uh, substance uses, uh, uh, gave me. Um, and I always, I always mentioned that, that I think if there was a gateway, I don't know if there's a gateway to my addictions, but certainly nicotine was a significant one because I, I, I didn't stop, stop smoking until I was 10 years sober. And that's another story. Uh, but I, I'm going to go back to my childhood when I get to that part of my recovery process. I think that's probably the best piece for me. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I've been, let's see, when I graduated from high school, I, I, wanted, I decided that I was going to, uh, to major in music someplace. I'd taken all sorts of personality and vocational tests and so forth. And the choices were a, min a clergyman, a counselor, or a musician. And I chose to become a musician. And because I had fallen in love with uh, the music of the church, and the organ, and so forth, and started studying uh, piano when I was in second grade, and then started uh, studying uh, organ at the University of Montana when I was in high school. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that would be my course. So um, when I graduated, I had a scholarship to go to the University of Montana in music, but I decided I wanted to go to uh, to study with a teacher at the University of Michigan. And uh, that, that was a real shock when I arrived there. For one thing, um, the drinking age in, in, in Michigan was 21 at that time. And it was 18 in Montana. So suddenly I was in a place where I had no access to alcohol at all. And one evening I had a, one night I had a, a, a dream that terrified me. And when I sat down with a friend to try to tell him about that dream, um, I couldn't speak. I lost my voice temporarily. And it was not uh, clinical aphasia. It just that I couldn't get a word out of my mouth. <clears throat> and that was frightening for me. That night, I. I got. I went out on the balcony, the six-story balcony of the residence hall, and sat and was ready to jump off there because I, of that terror. Um, 
fortunately, uh, the resident manager or whatever but it was, uh, saw me and he grabbed me and pulled me back. And then I w went into, they put me into therapy with someone there. And I don't know, I never did tell the dream to anyone. Um, and uh, I, I have no need to today, but um, that, that was a, a sign to me that something was very, very wrong. I decided uh, before the end of the semester that I just couldn't handle staying there any longer. So I dropped, I finished the semester, but went back to the University of Montana and I had my fix again. I could drink again. So I, it made it possible for me to just fit in and feel somewhat comfortable as long as I knew that the, the fix was always there. I then became restless and decided that I wanted to study some more, but I really wanted to uh, learn something about jazz and popular music because all my training had been in in um, in classical music. So a friend suggested that I enlist in the Navy so I could go to the Navy School of Music in Anacostia, D.C. And uh, I, I did. Uh, I went through boot camp with, with no problems. I, I remember when we finally got a weekend off, we could go into uh, into Chicago. I went in with a group of friends, and even though we were drinking, um, I didn't get a tattoo, but the rest of them did, and I still remember that decision. So I must have been somewhat rational at that point, which is is really amazing. And then uh, after that, I was I, I went to Washington D.C. and uh, uh, and uh, I loved the school and what I was learning. And I also loved the fact that DC is so interesting. And I found the bars that I could go to and then stagger home afterwards. And it was a pretty, pretty wonderful time. Uh, that, that ended me, uh, sent me then to, uh, uh, to work, uh, work in, a, in a unit band uh, station in uh, um, on North Island, San Diego, um, where it's interesting. When I went it went off base in San Diego, I never went off with any of the other band members. I always went off by myself to, I guess, to explore and, and find something. And <clears throat> and I can remember just just you know staggering back to just in time to the little, uh, I think the little boat that would take us back across the bay to, uh, to the base and many nights. And uh, when I was there uh, in, in San Diego, uh, uh, I, I met another sailor from Texas uh, and we started doing things together. And um, that was, uh, a long, that begins the beginning of a long story. We became, became involved in, in sexually and in other ways. And uh, then we were shipped out. Our band was, was, was shipped up to uh, San, Diego, uh, San Francisco, where we went on to the USS Midway, a carrier. And, uh, and I, I love being out to sea with all that sort of thing. 
I did have access to Everclear through the uh, 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 <laughs> the um, whatever it was, the Corman on in the uh, on the ship, but I really didn't drink much. Just was smoking like crazy. Um, that was a, a, a wonderful time that I was getting to explore more of the world. And um, I, we, we went then uh, to Guam and um, had some time off the ship there that was, was fun. That's about all I can remember of that. But then we, we went on to, uh, to Hawaii and it was in Hawaii one night the, ba the band was playing at an officer's club and I was drinking heavily as I did any time we're out like that. And um, there was an ensign from the ship who kept bringing me drinks and uh, took me, uh, uh, well, when we, when we finally finished, he, he helped me staggering, keeping me right up, upright back to the ship. <clears throat> and then he told me he would be in touch. I had no idea then what that meant. Uh, but the first night out to sea, I was, uh, someone came down to the, the cabin and asked me to, um, told me I was to go with him. He took me up to the radio shack where the ensign was on duty. And I had no idea what was going on there, but, um, but it turned out that he was asking, he had me come up there to, uh, uh, for sexual reasons. Now, I want to tell you this. I had no idea about whether I was straight or gay at that point. I just knew that I was different and didn't fit in. And um, it was, uh, this happened several times. I see it more vividly today than I could even five or 10 years ago. But a real turning point in my identity was when I went through all of these interviews with this psychologist or whatever he was with CID. And they found out <clears throat> well, no, when we pulled the, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting this crazy. When we pulled into Subic Bay in the Philippines, uh, I will say this, um, the band was playing for the officers uh, out on the deck and suddenly these couple MPs came over, spoke to the chief and then he led them over to me. They took me by both arms and uh, escorted me away from the band without any explanation, took me down to the quarters, went through my locker and so forth, finding what they, you know, taking everything out of it. And then I was taken off the ship, uh, unable to say goodbye to anyone. I would say that was probably one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Uh, I was being treated like a common prisoner or a common thief or whatever. That resulted in my being in a, uh, in a restricted barracks, not able to leave the base for several months. But the interrogation I had there was absolutely painful. And uh, it seems that the sailor that I met in, 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 in um, 
in San Diego had um, gotten caught with someone else on the on the uh, on the deck of of the destroyer escort they were posted on, um, and um, thinking they could get off easy. This was a time when the, the military was doing what they called witch hunts, looking for anybody that they could discharge under one of the uh, regulations in the USM, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Um, so they had reported my name. And uh, in this investigation, uh, I was asked all sorts of things about my childhood. And at that point, I, I don't, I, I, I told them that I had been molested uh, by a teacher when I was in high school. And then um, also told them, well, I guess I didn't talk about the early molestations, but I told them that. So I was discharged as undesirable because I had lied on, in my uh, induction uh, forms. And I'd said that I'd never had homosexual uh, activities. Uh, and uh, remember at that time, I, had, I didn't identify myself as one way or the other because I'd always had a girlfriend, but I also maybe had, I had a boyfriend. It was then during that time that was delayed to getting out of there that I had nothing else to do. So I spent my mornings and my afternoons in the White Hat Club. And I can see that bar just vividly today. And the beers were 10 cents a piece and mixed drinks for 25 cents. And I would just get hammered every day. And I can look back at it today that what I was doing, I was trying to block out the, the trauma, the fears, the memories and so forth that I was going through. And it became, it was, it was useful. I would say it probably kept me alive. Um, so I, I really believe that my alcoholic drink, drinking, you know, uh, began there. I was age 19 then. And uh, I often, that's where I drank Singapore slings. Uh, and it's a, a tall glass about, about as large, tall as this, this water bottle that I use. And uh, I would never think of drinking that sort of thing uh, later on, but it, it was a fix. So I, I was discharged with an undesirable discharge for all that reason. And the, that discharge and the reason there they put on it was homosexual. Now that was that was a real shock to me, and I took that as a as a as a label that was on my forehead. And I think today that that's what kind of turned me. I'd always that would always I'd always carry that label with me, and. Uh, I have to say that as a child and youth, I really thought of myself as rather androgynous because I, I loved all sorts of things that uh, are particularly, uh, are traditionally uh, um, 
female interests. I love cooking and sewing and 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 arts and music. But I also was very interested and in, very good in 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 math and science and it you know and woodworking and doing other things. The only thing that I did not have any interest in was sports. And that so I, I, I went out of all through all of that feeling really quite different. Looking back on it during my high school years, I don't remember having any really close friends except for people that were older than me uh, that I got involved with and friends at the uh, uh, in the university because I was studying as a high school student there. Uh, I did manage when I got out of the service to finish my bachelor's degree in music at the University of Montana. And I had, um, there was a group of friends. There was Jim, 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 Ralph, Larry, and um, let's see. Oh, and Bob. Bob is, is, Bob is uh, five years older than I am. <clears throat> um, they, we ran around together, just raised hell in Missoula. Later, when I moved to New York after graduation, they one by one moved to New York also. And um, they were, you know, these are my the friends I drank with. I have to tell you that Bob, who's will be 88 this year, and I are the only ones still alive. Now, see, my my name is is isn't Jeb, but that's my recovery name. That's my initials. My first name is really James or Jim. But several years ago, when I was making a significant change in my lifestyle and my my belief systems and all, I decided I needed a new name. I didn't because I know that Jim could get me drunk again. I mean, one of the Jims died of HIV. His partner, the other another Jim, died of prostate cancer not too long later. Uh, Ralph died. Oh, the other Jim, uh, who became a Buddhist monk, fell uh, in, in mountain climbing 300 feet several years ago, and that took him out. He was sober, though. And then Ralph died of uh, kidney failure and effects of cirrhosis two years ago and uh, that leaves my good friend bob in, in missoula behind me and myself uh, i tell that because it's just just uh, you know i could have continued in the same lifestyle that i did if i probably if i'd stayed in new york after uh, after juilliard because um after i was in New York for a few years. I decided I wanted to study further. And the teacher I was studying privately with there suggested uh, a teacher in, in Germany. So I, I applied for Fulbright, American Field Service scholarships and so forth. But wouldn't you know it, I was late in, in putting those, getting those in. So I didn't, I didn't qualify. But determined as I was, I decided, okay, I'm just going to apply directly to the school, the teacher, and I'll do it. So I started saving my money. I took a Berlitz uh, course uh, uh, in, in 
conversational German to prepare me. And I spent a wonderful year then studying in Germany and uh, running around. Um, you know, I, I, the thing that I can look at is that I guess I was fairly functional all of, the, all of those years because I, I didn't flunk out of school. I did complete things. I had a good job. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I managed things in, in Germany well. And when I returned to the States, I really, uh, I, just, I, I was determined that I, I might as well, now that I'm not working, I, need, I should go ahead and, and get my master's degree. And I, so I had applied and auditioned then at the Juilliard School and, and was accepted. And uh, because I had not, received my bachelor's degree there, but it's usually a, uh, a one-year master's program. Uh, I ended up uh, having to do two years there, which were very good. But, and, and I must say, I, I had some wonderful church jobs as organist and choir director, first of all, in Peekskill, New York, and then a little church, Episcopal Church near the... Uh, United Nations, and I managed to hire some of my friends as soloists and other musicians there, and it, it was a great time um, until I believe it would have been in um, uh, 60, 67 or 68, I, <clears throat> I ended up very, very weak at work and jaundiced. And uh, so I went back, I went home and then contacted the doctor and got in there and I was diagnosed with hepatitis. I was hospitalized uh, then for several months. Uh, we, at that time, they knew very little about viral hepatitis. And so we kind of assumed it was that. Nobody was asking about my drinking, which is very interesting, except that I was told <clears throat> that uh, I, I should never drink again because it could damage the liver. Um, I stayed in the hospital and my my uh, liver function test kept getting worse and worse and worse until finally they, they told me that if I didn't, uh, I was getting a lot of pressure from the, the priest at the church where I was employed. When you're going to come back and come back. And they told me that I really couldn't handle that kind of pressure. So um, I, um, I resigned from the job because I figured I really wanted to live. The job wasn't that important. My mother came out from Montana and spent with a month with me so I could be at home. Friends took care of me and all. And I, you know, I was convinced that I'm just going to heal and go back to th things. But I had been warned that I should never have more than one drink in the future. And however, uh, I went out with friends on, on New Year's Eve the following year and I decided I could have one drink and that's all I had. But then a few days later, I went out and had several drinks. 
And I guess that was, you know, that was just back, back off the water wagon, as they say. It was also at that point, you found that, uh, I found marijuana. Uh, I was a goody two-shoes. I have to remember that, that I have a voice inside of my head from my grandmother, who was the only emotionally available person in my life as a child. She used to say, Jimmy's such a good boy. Jimmy's such a good boy. So anytime I got in trouble, like the stuff in the Navy, or started drinking or started smoking, I felt shame about that because I wouldn't want grandma to know about things. So um, I also found, because um, of the, the, the group I was running around with after the marijuana, I found uh, diet pills, which I had found also in the Navy when I could go down to Tijuana and buy Benzedrine or Dexedrine and use those to keep me awake all, all night long or other things. So we started using that and it was, uh, uh, I got a little bit frightened about the kind of, because I was getting things, you know, on, you know off the street about getting real trouble there. So I had an offer uh, for a job in, in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and that was because when I was in Germany, I had studied, I needed a place to practice and I found an American Episcopal Church there, got involved with them and a place to practice and get to know people. And the priest there had moved to Baltimore and he offered me a job in Baltimore, which was at a fraction of what I was making in New York. But at least it was safely away from the street drugs. And it would be a schedule that most days I wouldn't have to get up until noon because I didn't have to appear anyplace. I'd have to be there on Saturday morning for a children's choir rehearsal and Sunday morning for church services. And then a staff meeting once a week and then whatever time I could fit into practice. <laughs> it was very convenient for someone like me. So. Uh, this was a, uh, it was a rewarding time in many ways because I was able to, to perform music and, and direct music that was very, and write music that was very meaningful for me and, and helpful. Um, and I, and I, but shortly after I moved there, I, I was introduced to a, a, a captain in the, in the army. Uh, with Navy, with Army intelligence. Um, and uh, we began a relationship which actually lasted seven and a half years. <clears throat> One of the, the interesting factors about that is, is he was a wonderful, he was a good bartender and caregiver. And uh, a after some time, it was agreed that I could not drink gin when we were out because I, I, I would become so self-destructive and, and vulgar and a lot of other things. So that was a, an important pact. We also watched his, his mother die of emphysema and cirrhosis of the liver very slowly over, uh, over years time. And uh, that, I, I don't know, that, that uh, just didn't bother me, I guess. And then also, 
1977, I uh, was driving downtown Baltimore, going from bar to bar, and I um, I ran into a tow truck that was um, pulling someone out of an accident. <clears throat> I uh, sat there wondering what was happening. The police came and it, it was like a, a change of shift or something. So they didn't, they didn't ticket me. It, it was the strangest thing. I was able to, to, um, to, um, to drive, drive home afterwards. I called my insurance agent uh, in, who was in White Plains, New York. And my insurance agent there was one of my drinking buddies when I was at the Navy School of Music. He was in the Army. Uh, he was from Newtown, Massachusetts. And, um, and he said, don't worry about it. Just get it, you know, and we'll take care of it. And uh, so I, I followed his instructions. And I wasn't hurt, so that, that was okay. A week after that accident, I had a call from Larry, one of my friends from my youth, uh, telling me that Al had, on <clears throat> Easter day, um, been at a party with a bunch of them in Terrytown, New York, and uh, he decided to go home. They tried to take his keys away from him, but on his way home, he drove under a semi-truck uh, uh, on the Westchester Expressway decapitating himself and the car. Um, I would say that Al had a drinking drinking <laughs> pattern very much like mine. Uh, that, that, that was upsetting, but you know, what did I do? I drank over it. And uh, I didn't learn from that. Now, when I was in Baltimore, I, I, I was mainly involved in, you know, in church music and in, in the church. I was also uh, a lay assistant in charge of religious education, many other things there. And I found these things meaningful. I was also on the diocesan uh, evangelism committee and I was head of the, the, the committee on church music for the diocese. We produced a lot of workshops, we produced a lot of, uh, I wrote a lot of music for those things. I was responsible for that big diocesan worship services. A lot of things that were very fulfilling, but I was also drinking very heavily uh, throughout that time. I, I wish I could say there's a turning point for me that really brought me down to the bottom, but I can look at a, the year before I stopped drinking, when my my partner uh, called me, and uh, we we usually would try to see each other on weekends. He was stationed at the Pentagon, and I would either go down there after church on Sunday, or he would come up on Friday and spend the weekend a time together. And he uh, he told me on that phone call that he was getting married, and that. Uh, it was a shock because I knew him very well. We had planned that we would 
And that when he got out, when he retired, we would uh, set up housekeeping together and do all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, I didn't take it well at all. And uh, I know I got angry and lashed out at him. But I was sensible in that I called my friend Carol, who was the alto soloist at my church. And I said, Carol, can you come over with me? Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start drinking and I don't want to kill myself. So she stayed with me until I passed out. And, uh, I, and of course, what was I doing? I was self-medicating there, whatever the pain was that I didn't want to deal with. And, and it was a year later that I, um, I was the spiritual director for an evangelism retreat at the Diocesan Conference Center uh, outside of Cumberland, Maryland. And um, I was doing some things on centering prayer and so forth, which was one of my early practices. And one morning I was sitting on a picnic table, um, looking out over the, the fields and the mountains. And I heard a, a voice inside saying, why do you drink so much? And I sarcastically answered, because I like the taste of it. And I knew intuitively that I had lied to myself, to that inner voice. So I shared that with the, with the, the, the group and I, I swore I would never drink again. And they, I had their prayers and their thoughts and all of that. And I felt really relieved. <clears throat> that was on it. Actually at that point, I guess I hadn't had a drink for three days because we had a rule that there could be no alcohol at the conference. But the following Saturday, I, I played for a wedding at the church, uh, a very good friend, and um, at the reception following, where there were about 300 people, there was an open bar. And I started what I call, uh, well, stinking thinking now. I, I decided, well, you know, Skip and Bonnie would really be offended if I don't drink at their, uh, at their wedding, if I can't post them. So I went up to the open bar and I asked Notch on the Rock. And this bartender took a, a, a glass, which was almost as tall as this, <laughs> this a skinny glass anyway, filled it with ice and then filled it with scotch. Uh, this is a turning point for me because uh, I didn't even walk away from the bar with that glass. I stood there, drank it, and I put it down and asked for another one. It was many years later that I figured that was probably 10 or 12 shots. So you can say I was really off to the races immediately there. I know today that with one of the things with the first drink uh, phenomenon is that it shuts down a lot of the capacity of the prefrontal cortex cortex, the front part of the brain, the most recent, the newest part of the, of the brain, uh, where, where it's able to, uh, to recall the past and project to the future and actually plan. So I had, you know, even though I, I had a long history of knowing that I could have just one drink, I would never start drinking unless I could 
continue for years. But there I was. I I I didn't have I I got on what someone calls the crazy train. And that was a that that performance at that wedding reception is one of the most embarrassing and awful I've ever had in my life. And they people took me away from there to a, a, a after hours party, I guess it would be, and just kept pouring me full of coffee and so forth. Then they got me home. They drove my car home. They dumped me in the middle of my living room floor where I woke up the following morning. And I knew without a doubt at that point that I couldn't safely ever drink again. And this is really corny, but I, I, I threw my hands in the air at that point. I think I was still on my knees. And I said, take away the bottle, take away the craving and make me open to whatever help I need. And I wasn't talking. You know, I, I, during my time in Baltimore, I, I also explored the idea of becoming an ordained deacon. And I spent time in seminary and I began, I learned a lot about the Bible and faith things. And, and I had no concept of anyone, anything out there that gave a crap about what was going on in my life. And so I didn't, what I did was then uh, I just surrendered to that. Some people call it the spirit of the universe. Today, I call it my innermost self. <clears throat> my, my, uh, I began making restitution or amends to my employer the next morning and was told that I needed to go into counseling. In counseling, I had a therapist who suggested that I needed to practice controlled drinking and have one glass of wine, either while preparing dinner or during dinner. And I thought that was absolutely insane. I wasn't going to do that under any circumstances. I was then sent to a psychiatrist for a, a medical diagnosis or psychiatric diagnosis. He diagnosed me as a manic depressive, what we now call bipolar two, and uh, put me on lithium carbonate, which would cut off the manic phases that I was so good at. And um, I took the bottle then to my therapist the next day and I said, well, see, it says no alcohol. So I convinced him that I couldn't safely drink, drink alcohol. Well, I won't go through all of that, that, that journey, but um, I, you know, I poured myself into my work. My personality was certainly different with my employer. And finally, at one year of sobriety, I called my employers at the church in Baltimore and, uh, and I resigned because I was being asked to do things that were virtually impossible. And uh, I, 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 was, I really felt like I was gonna drink again if I stayed there, so I resigned. And that, uh, after that, I decided I really need a change of scenery. I'd already cut myself off from all of my drinking friends. Uh, that was not the problem. And so I decided to move west, move back to Montana eventually. Uh, I've had a lot of diagnoses over the years um, that I have learned to, to address and deal with, you know, and the, and I remember when I was in high school, I had an anxiety disorder and had medications for that because it was causing ulcers. 
you know, that's when I was like 15, 16 years old. Uh, then I had really, now I have the substance abuse uh, uh, disorder. Uh, and then when I found AA, I found that there was actually with mood swings and so forth. We're not, I wasn't bipolar, perhaps, I don't know, but they were the, that roller coaster ride that I started hearing about in the AA meeting, up and down and up and down, which I, which I called you know, being uh, rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence, that emotional thing that I had been medicating all of those years that I just wouldn't, couldn't deal with. But thanks to AA, I began to learn how to take my inventory of what was going on, eventually inventory of emotions and, and thoughts, as well as the things that are outlined in the big book. So that I began to find ways to deal with, with these things. Um, I didn't drink again, I didn't die. So I kept going and with a lot of other disappointments over the years, uh, my, my partner, uh, in, in Montana, committed suicide 36 years ago. And a part of that was he was in AA. Uh, we, he wasn't in AA when we met, but after we met, he decided he was an alcoholic. And, but uh, he came to hit his bottom, partly because people said, if you don't get God, you're going to die. And he ended up killing himself. Uh, and I, I guess there's a resentment that I've had to deal with. And part of the reason that later on, like 2013 here in, in Denver, uh, I, uh, a group of people, some of whom I sponsored, and I decided we needed a secular AA meeting. And we meant by that a meeting where people can simply be honest, not being expected to pretend anything, but learning to, it's a safe place to just say, share, thoughts, feelings, any of those things, beliefs, non-beliefs. And that was a real salvation. And of course, all through this, I'd wish that we'd had something like this, something like that, when, uh, when Norman was alive. Um, I decided after that, that I would never get into another relationship because I'd had some abandonment issues many, many times in life. Uh, After his death, I decided that I really wanted to commit to suicide prevention, recognizing my attempt when I was 18 or 19, and then what happened to him, and also what I was hearing, learning about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went back to school to get a degree in, in guidance and counseling and become a, a, a licensed professional counselor addiction specialist. And I, I realized today that it, it was just a few years ago, I told my sister, you know, that I didn't, my, my commitment to suicide prevention wasn't just about Norman and others. It was about myself because I had to learn what was really bothering me, that I was self-medicating with alcohol, with, uh, when I, well, when I stopped alcohol, I started dropping back to, to desserts and sweets like crazy. But then with nicotine uh, and um, 
Well, the things earlier on, the drugs and so forth, the marijuana and all. But I was flashing back this morning to, oh, I guess I was probably 15 or 16 years sober in, in Spokane. <clears throat> uh, they, they held a conference there in the Northwest called To Be What You Are. It was a gay lesbian uh, conference or a roundup sort of thing. And I was a speaker there. And in that speak, when I spoke there, I said, I think my underlying addiction is a sexual addiction. And I didn't know what I was saying about that. I just realized that that, that brought about a, a distraction, a kind of emotional fix and so forth that drugs did too. And I'd found myself after being, to being um, abandoned, rejected several times, that uh, I was seeking love in all the wrong places. I was looking for a fix in, in, in the act or not a relationship, but it was, uh, it was certainly taking over my life. Also at that time, I was working in a, uh, 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 a residential program for, for, for teenagers who had emotional and legal problems, behavioral problems, and I was there Doing, uh, doing diagnostic tests with them to find out what their addiction potential was and so forth. And um, I saw that those, these kids who could no longer smoke, no longer have alcohol or the other things were gaining weight like crazy. They were using food as a, as a, as a medication at the same. So I started attending Overeaters Anonymous and started an Overeaters Anonymous group at the agency. Uh, it was there where the kids helped me to identify that I had a binge food at that time, which was these red uh, licorice twists. Uh, and I would get the big three pound containers, whatever. And I always had some of my desk in my briefcase, in my pockets, in my car. And I was always munching on them. Uh, and so I began to see that I was using food of that kind uh, to self-medicate. So that was an important piece for me uh, of recognizing that I was stuffing my feelings again with food. Uh, it was years later in, in sponsoring other people and hearing other people's stories. I finally began to recognize that there were some underlying causes and conditions that I needed to to address if I was going to continue on this path. And it really wasn't until I was retiring in, in uh, 2002. Well, 2002, I had my left shoulder replaced for the first time and I weighed 218 pounds and I had always weighed around 150. And I, and I also had a BiPAP machine uh, for, for sleep apnea. And I said to my doctor, you know, I'll bet if I'm fat on the outside, I'm fat on the inside. So that's where I took on the, the food addiction thing and cut out white flour and fight sugar. And in six months, I lost 50 pounds. And fortunately, I've been able to maintain that pretty much. Uh, you know, that would be like 68 pounds more than I weigh right now. <clears throat> uh, I also found a psychiatrist 
in, in, in Spokane who understood adult attention uh, adult ADHD, attention deficit disorder. Because in my work, I'd, I'd worked with clients who had been diagnosed as bipolar, but we got together and I realized that actually what they had was ADHD. And we worked out things. I worked for kids, first of all, and then some adults and worked on some behavioral changes. But I found the psychiatrist who said something really important to me. When I, at the second session, after I'd gone through more of my history of dependent, drug dependence and behavioral dependence, he said, you know, you know, this is, you're obviously ADHD and you've probably known it all along and you've spent your life self-medicating. And that rang a bell. And so he put me on a, a medication. I wouldn't take the amphetamines like Ritalin at that time because of my experience in my 20s and 30s. But they come out with Stratera, which was just a norepinephrine reuptic inhibitor. And that really helped me for a while. I have to realize, though, that I still wasn't dealing with underlying causes and conditions. So uh, moving ahead, well, that, that, that stopped working, so we added Adderall. But when in 2001, I, uh, my, mother, my mother died. Uh, suddenly, well, not so suddenly, she had a stroke and, and, and died. And I was having back problems, hip problems, and I knew I needed to have hip replacement. So I, um, uh, I put it off until after she died. I had my first hip replacement. Um, and uh, see, I'm doing, going through the silver, which is really important. Um, and when I, when I offered to go back to work, I was at that time the, uh, the organist and choir director, minister of music at the Catholic Cathedral in Spokane. Uh, I, I've always worked two jobs, or gone to school full time and worked a job as a part of my also uh, addictions problem, I think. Um, when I left, I left that job. Um, and we have, remember 9-11 actually happened just a few weeks after my mother died. And um, then the TSA uh, pat downs and everything started. Because I had these implants, uh, I always had, I had to go, I couldn't do, just do the, the screening through the whatever they had at that time. They'd always pat me down. And every time I go through there, I would have a panic attack and I would literally uh, leave my body. And uh, my sister was always prepared that I would probably call her as soon as I got through security so she could talk me down. <clears throat> um, that was the beginning of a, a battles with PTSD which I will say eventually brought me around to the point of recognizing that that, that was triggering what happened to me as a child. Uh, when I was eight years old, my teenage uncle moved into my room. He had been in a, in a 
the Catholic orphanage or uh, children's home after his mother died. And uh, he moved into my room and started molesting me nightly. That went on till I was 11. I, when those things happened, I disassociated. I had no, I had no memory of those things for years. I never cried when those things happened. They just happened. When I was 12, a scoutmaster exposed himself to me and he said, kiss it. And I ran home in terror. When I was in the, in the university, studying at the university, my organ teacher unzipped my trousers and did things to me. And this happened several times when I told him, no, this has to stop. <laughs> Later on, there was a priest who molested, molested me. And one of the things I can say today is that at that time, I had no idea that I could say no to an adult or to an authority. But I buried all of those things until, um, until when I was 62 years old when I left the, uh, the, the job at, at the cathedral in Spokane. And I went to uh, my first meeting of the Survivors Network of the, those abused by priests. And slowly, I began to recover some of those memories. And I've been involved with that group for 18 years now. And uh, um, I, I continue, I, I, when I moved to Denver, I became the leader for the Colorado uh, chapter. And I, I spend a lot of time advocating for statute limitations reform and try to help people to find the kind of help they need. And see, I keep remembering my grandmother saying, Jimmy's such a good boy. And I, you know, I, AA has helped me become the kind of person that I really wanted to be. And I found out that kind of person to the continuing use of the 12 step process. Essential is the continuing use of the process described in step four, where I not only look for, well, first of all, the book says after that, he lists off his 12 steps and three pertinent ideas that being convinced we are now at step three. So that's where the inventory starts for me, is trying to relate to the words that, are, that he, he wrote down or other people share that describe the kind of potential and kind of person that I could have been, have been. And then also you know, look at the fears underlying all those things and realize that I was really a very broken and, and vulnerable person much of my life. And so I developed these horrible defenses uh, for keeping people at a distance uh, except when I drank, then I could let people in. But then the central part that I need to talk about, and I've reminded of a friend that I didn't last time I shared, is, is that sane and sound ideal for my future relationships. And I probably sponsored or tried to sponsor hundreds of guys and gals over the years. And getting anyone to write down that ideal is, is almost impossible. My first attempt was, was actually trying to describe what, describe what I wanted out of the relationship, what I could get from other people and not what it really needed to be. It's a kind of person that I want to be claiming some very common and desirable uh, strengths 
And that's, and I like what Bill wrote. He says, whatever our, our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. And I'm still growing toward that. I keep a list uh, on the computer and a copy here on my desk all the time so I can do a, a, a little inventory of am I progressing? Am I doing any better this year than last year, let alone 20 or 30 or 40 years ago? So for me, there's always room for growth. And I can't imagine anything that would make me turn back to smoking or drinking or marijuana or the food, the food fixes. Uh, fortunately, I never got into gambling, but that would be another thing to zone out into. And I know some people do. So I'm very aware that, uh, that I have to watch out for uh, behavioral and chemical fixes. Uh, so I don't know if I said it, but it's 15,533 days today, uh, alcohol free. And, but I didn't stop smoking until I was 10 years sober and I decided it was really controlling my life. Then I needed some help for somebody else who had, had used the program and he helped me to titrate off of nicotine. And so uh, that I honestly say that my real recovery took a real boost when I got rid of that fix. And of course, the layers of the onion keep coming off as I continue to use that four-step process, which is what is suggested in the 10th step uh, for me at, uh, to figure out what is, what is eating me and what can I do about it? Because I, if there's anything that I did during my drinking years and early sobriety is I held other people responsible for my happiness or, or my sadness, for my joy or lack thereof, for my bad luck and so forth. But today I know that I am responsible for my own happiness, my own joy and my own freedom because I know how to live a day at a time. So uh, I actually probably shared more than I, that I wanted to, I, my concern was that when I, if I tell a story like that, which is sort of my drunkalog and whatever, sexologue, whatever it is, I don't know how many new people can, can relate to that. I know when I first came in, I was most, more, most interested in hearing from people who had several months or a couple of years in recovery, maybe five or 10 years, but you know, people have been around forever and seem to have all their shit together. And I thought, oh man, that's, could he possibly be telling the truth or what is he not telling? But um, this opportunity to, to, lock, tell, to talk as long as I want uh, was a very generous offer. And I ended up hearing things that I didn't know I was thinking about. But that's, uh, but I don't know what percent, that's, that's probably still in a general way, but it was like what happened and what it's like now. And what it's like now is I, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm comfortable with my own skin, comfortable with my own company. I'm very fair to the people I work with. I don't have to get into a pissing match with anybody about the way to do things or what to believe. I don't not need to lecture. I, I love the AA practice of, and here, I can talk about myself, not about other people. Gotten off the blame train, 
and at mo most of the time I'll off the crazy train. If I get on the crazy train, catch myself, I do, I stop and I do one of the things to center myself. My favorite one is that little breathing exercise of breathing in through the nose, counting to five, doing that, holding it for six, and then letting it out through, as, as through a straw from the lips, counting to seven. And I often do that in, in, in AA meetings where other people are talking if something is triggered because I need to deactivate that sympathetic nervous system that I've lived in so much where it's a fright, flight, freeze thing that kept me from doing things or just yeah, having in a combative uh, role with other people. I need to get out of that and let the parasympathetic nervous system relax my heartbeat, everything else, lower the secretion of cortisol, which is damaging to all the internal organs. And uh, I guess my sponsor in Montana always said, you know, AA is really a, not a selfish program, even though people say it, because selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of all our programs, Bill wrote. But he says it's a self-love program. It's learning to do loving and generous and kind things and healthy things for myself. So I'm not looking for anybody else to do it. Okay, I think I'll shut up before I tell any more stories. Thanks so much.